What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk uh, to Dr. Rania Awad, MD. You are most welcome. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wonderful to be here with you. Thank you so much for this invitation. Uh, uh, my, absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. And just to introduce uh, uh, you to the viewers a bit more, uh, Dr. Awad is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine, where she is the director of the Stanford Muslim Mental Health and Islamic Psychology Lab, as well as Stanford University's affiliate chaplain and affiliate professor of Islamic studies. In the community, uh, she serves as president and co-founder of the Mariston.org, a holistic mental health nonprofit serving Muslim uh, communities, and the director of the Rahma Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating Muslim women and girls. In addition, she is a faculty of Islamic psychology at the Cambridge Muslim College here in England and the uh, Islamic Seminary of America. She's also a senior fellow uh, for Yakin Institute and the Institute of Social Policy and Understanding. Prior to uh, studying medicine, she pursued classical Islamic studies in Damascus in Syria and holds certifications as Ijaza in the Quran, Islamic law and other branches of the Islamic sciences. And you can follow her on a Twitter handle, which I will put in the link in the description below, as well as to the other organizations I mentioned just now. Now, today, Dr. Awad has kindly agreed to discuss an extremely important and often overlooked subject, actually, the internalized Islamophobia that is affecting Muslim, American Muslim communities from within. Uh, it's a really important uh, subject. So if I may, uh, Dr. Abbott, if, over to you. Thank you so very much for this um, opportunity to discuss, yes, a very difficult uh, conversation, but definitely one that's very important. Mm. I think the best thing really to do to kind of frame the discussion is probably to share a story. And mm. the story is, um, it's one that takes place actually in my own clinic. Uh, at Stanford University. And um, for me, I think it was a defining moment to understand what is this term Islamophobia, particularly internalized Islamophobia? What does that mean exactly? And so um, the story is that I, in one of my clinics one day, I had two patients, one after another, both Muslim women, one who wore a full niqab and face covering, or hijab and niqab, so fully covered um, in black, and the other Muslim woman uh, does, does not cover. One had just completed her um, session with me, and was walk we were walking out into the hallway for her to leave, and in the hallway is the waiting room where I'm calling back the next patient to my office. And I could see that my second patient was visibly shaken, just somebody who was really kind of very anxious and, and anxious at baseline, but today was more than usual. And so I, you know, didn't say anything out of privacy in the hallway, but as we entered into my office, sat down, checked in with her and said, what's happening? You doing okay? Like what's going on? And she just sort of really trembling, kind of like a leaf trembling and said, why was that other lady here? What is she doing in a place like Stanford University? What does someone like her dressed like that think they're doing here? And 
you know, I took a moment, helped her kind of breathe through this a little bit, but eventually said to her, you know, I can't share any details out of confidentiality for what's, you know, why this other patient is there. But I'm very, you know, curious about your own response to mm. what's happening here. And she said, well, I think people that look like that give Muslims a bad rep. And in a place like Stanford, that really, that kind of dress doesn't belong. Wow. So we talked through this. And eventually, as we were talking through and kind of processing everything, and what I can say, share with you and I couldn't share with her, in you know, is just that the other patient really had a lot of the same family complaints and interpersonal issues that were happening as the second patient. But, you know, she's done the wiser related to that. And it had nothing to do with her niqab or the way she covered. And so as we kind of processed a little bit more um, my second patient's reactions, at the end of it all, she sort of sat back in the chair and just sort of sighed and let a sigh of relief out and sort of said, man, the media has done a number on me too. Wow. Right? Kind wow. of connecting and realizing that she had been holding all this internalized fear, irrational fear, which is what how we define Islamophobia of Islam and Muslims or the symbols that represent them. Mm. And that to me was very telling. It was kind of this defining moment for me of realizing, wow, even for us as Muslims, we have taken in a lot of what the media has said about Muslims, what others have been saying uh, negatively or incorrectly, a lot of the misinformation that's out there, and carry that along with us and don't realize sometimes that it's um, these unconscious or what we would call in our field kind of an implicit bias that we carry around um, to our own. Yeah, yeah. I think what, what, if I may just say a really interesting point you make there uh, about the, the term Islamophobia, because often conservative commentators I in the West say, well, Islamophobia, this word, they don't like it because it just means you can't criticize Islam. You can't disagree with Islam, they say. But you've defined it clinically, I think, as an irrational fear of Muslims, perhaps, or Islam. So it's not based on a, an objection that might be rationalized. It's irrational. It's not Correct. based on, on information and knowledge. And I think that's a really important definition you've given there. Definitely. And, and that the term phobia in psychiatry is, is exactly the same type of understanding, that it's an irrational fear of mm. something that when you break it down and analyze, it doesn't quite add up. Mm, no. And neither does the amount of affect or reaction that comes with it as well. And I just want, want to really ask, if I may, um, we, we've all heard about, you know, other other phobias and, or, and other uh, irrational prejudices. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy and delicious breads, buns and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is that people have against groups of people. Um, obviously, we all know what that might be. but And that's recognized in psychology and, and in the ac academy as you know, a problem that we, we need to address and understand and analyze and find ways through this. Can we now say that that is true for Islamophobia, as you've defined it? Is this a recognized problem in psychology, for example? Not in the clinical textbooks. However, the entire field of Islamophobia is a massive field in which there's been a lot of writing, studying, and research on it. Um, in many ways, some of the experts on Islamophobia may also disagree with ex the exact terminology of it, there may have been a better way to actually conceptualize this entire, um, this this concept. However, as um, Dr. Hatem Bazian, who is a, one of the main writers, I would say, in the current era on Islamophobia, often says, the train has left the station on this particular term. Mm -hmm. um, it's really what has been coined and used for such a long time now. And so we'll continue to use it, understanding that there probably could be other 
better ways to exactly um, capture the meanings of what's happening here. Mm. But your definition and your experience there, would that be recognized by your your professional colleagues as an example of irrational fear and treated as such? Sure, the concept of phobia, absolutely. Anything that is, anything really, there could be, and it's very individualized from person to person, so it may not be in the DSM, in our manual of diagnosis, um, but really any fear that a person may have that is irrational and also elicits a response that is not, um, that is above and beyond what would be typical, uh, is categorized as a phobia. Mm, interesting. Now, you, you mentioned, uh, I mentioned in, in your introduction to, to your work that uh, you, you've discussed internalized Islamophobia that is affecting Muslim communities uh, in, in America particularly. And I don't think it's just in America, by the way. It's in a number of other places in Europe as well, of course, and, and maybe other places sure. as well. But um, it, it's in terms of the social dynamics here. How does that work? Are, are we talking about people who are individually consuming um, you know, is, Islamophobic, uh, prejudicial kind of concepts from the media or from TikTok or Twitter or YouTube? Uh, or, or is there a, a more kind of social dynamic to this, that whole communities are affected in some way? So that's, yes, definitely. I think that's something to to see. So I'll, I'll clarify first that a lot of the research that I do in my lab is focused on American Muslims. That is where, right. I, where I reside and where a lot of my research is. But I absolutely agree with you that it's um, really similar in other um, Western nations and really wherever you find the Muslim diaspora. I mean, you really find this all throughout the world. Um, and we focus a lot on the English speaking populations in our research. But yes, I would say that it's beyond just the individual. There are different layers of Islamophobia. The individual being, if you think of it as almost like concentric circles, one circle within another, within another, nested within one another, Mm -hmm. you start at the individual level and there are direct effects. And some of this starts right at home. And that's why we always say we need to point inwards before we point outwards. Mm -hmm. Kind of similar to uh, the, the story that I mentioned, there are things that happen even in how we discuss what is acceptable and what isn't in terms of, for example, outward Islamic appearance um, of women or men, children. And so you have an individualized level. Beyond that, you go into more of a community and that starts at the local level. What was that community like? Was there any support or wasn't there? Mm. Beyond that, you kind of go out into a national level. So for us, we kind of look at the entire United States and what is what what is happening, kind of what is the rhetoric that is being said about Muslims. And then you kind of enter out into the the global domain. All of these stacked one upon another um, absolutely affect how Islamophobia is striven. And is it the case that men and women women experience this differently as well? Obviously, the hijab or the niqab is a very visible social sign, uh, unavoidable. uh, uh, But for men, are men affected by uh, this kind of internalized Islamophobia in the United States? Certainly men and and children, but women take the cake here. They absolutely do. All of the research has shown that Muslim women who are visibly identifiable as Muslims um, by their hijab or other dress wear, that they definitely are the symbol of Islam. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, so much of the hate crimes and other um, violence, even um, and even, you know, smaller um, uh, biases that come towards them tend to come to Muslim women the most. But certainly men experience this too, and the more visible as Muslims they are, whether that be by clothing or whether that be by facial hair or... I was going to say, wearing a beard, what would that be? You know, a, a very, I don't mean just a stubble, I mean a, a, a big beard. A big uh, beard, sure. Yeah. Sure. sure. Uh, Although one might say that, you know, in recent years, the beard has also become kind of a fashion statement for some. Yeah. So and here's where, you know, names matter, what a person's name is could make right. a big difference. Yeah. Um, and then children, the stats related to Islamophobia in children are, are heartbreaking. And as I see this as a, as a parent, knowing that as I send my child, my children out into the world um, who are visibly identifiable as Muslims and have names as such, knowing that there's a 50-50 chance, it's, it's nearly 49 to 50% of all Muslim children in the U.S. will experience some level of identity-based um, Islamophobia directed towards them but because of their Muslim identity, either their names, what they wear, even what they eat at school in their lunch boxes, right? So 49, 50%, that's half of, it's an incredible statistic. It is, it's an incredible st- statistic and heartbreaking. And and this is where so many Muslim families, like like the, the, the first patient I was referring to, you know, make a very, make a decision about 
do we want to be visibly identifiable mm-hmm. and uh, recognizable into the world? Um, or do we kind of make this more private? Mm. So the pressure must be enormous on, on obviously, on, on Muslim women not to wear hijab or, or perhaps for uh, men and women not to have Islamic names publicly, Islamic names. So, you know, call themselves Mo rather than Muhammad. I, I'm not so sure what, what they would say. But, you know, the emphasis is very much on, on, on invisibility sometimes rather than being yourself and having an identity. You know, America prides itself on being a free country where freedom of religion is practiced allegedly um uh, and valued allegedly uh, uh, as a political and social v- value um so there seems to be a disconnect between the rhetoric and the reality uh, certainly when it comes to muslims then yeah. absolutely and i think that's the, the story that i was sharing earlier was um kind of like encapsulated in real time you could see kind of the the t- one who decided to take a stance and what was important too and i didn't share this earlier is you know this is not a woman who um comes from a family of hijab wearing or niqab wearing women she made a very personal decision um, that meant a lot to her and kind of took that stand not just in hijab but full niqab um and then you almost see the example uh, on the other side of a, a Muslim woman who's also proud to be a Muslim, but very private about her Islam. Right. So, I mean, how do you, you mentioned the strong statistic, half the children uh, are affected by this. How do, how do you clinically or as, as, a, as a carer actually come alongside these people and their families? How do you help them? Because surely there's nothing that can be done uh, in that the, the forces are, there's an asymmetry of power and influence. So how, how do you assist them in in somehow dealing with this reality. Absolutely. The, the For me, the parents are important 100%. I'm actually quite interested in the youth. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the work I do in the community is actually on a youth level. Um, locally, we run multiple girls, halakas or kind of youth groups um, and youth camps and different things that we do for kind of empowerment. And so knowledge is empowerment and being able to get to a point where you feel proud of who you are and your identity, realizing that you're going to be out there and going to be questioned and you'll get the funny looks and may even have, unfortunately, negative um, attention come your way as well. Mm. But also realizing that the kind of the, the, the core identity that I often speak to the you know, the girls that I mentor um, and those who mentor the girls, we have a mentorship program, is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with you, like that God is with you. And um, if this is a, a requirement of your faith, because God has has put it there, then he's never going to put something or um, make enforce something that actually isn't the best for you. And so it's almost like a cognitive shift <laughs> that needs to happen, you know, kind of reframing this whole discussion of what could be negative and realizing there are risks really to everything out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but that sense of like pride in oneself and knowing that God is overseeing everything and protecting you um, as you are careful and protecting yourself, of course, but that God is there with you um, is powerful. And I find that so many young girls kind of, um, again, those that's who I mentor, often really take on that message and feel that sense of pride and are able to go into their schools or into their programs um, with their hijabs and feel very confident in that. Well, this touches on a fascinating subject because when I think of psychology or psychiatry normally, I think of like Sigmund Freud or, you know, I think of these quite atheist or materialist kind of outlooks or assumptions, particularly, you know, Sigmund Freud, who was very, you know, passionate atheist in many ways. It motivated him. Uh, apparently. But your understanding of psychology uh, uh, and psychiatry, I guess, seems to be much more, for want of a better word, holistic. It includes the spiritual, from what you're saying. So you're talking about changing the paradigm. So that this is a much more holistic approach to human well-being than the narrowly reductionist or materialist approach. So that that's very interesting, I think. Absolutely. I can't tell you how much um, the the rendition on psychology being this Freudian psychology is is so problematic. And for me, it's been um, really the catalyst to look into what else is there. So I welcome you and everybody else listening, actually, to um, the newest kind of emerging field uh, within the field of psychology today, which is understood to be um, religion and spirituality. Yeah. And so there is quite an emphasis and a push, actually, to um, have religion and spirituality be part and parcel of the field of psychology. When I was training, 
you know, did my training at Stanford. And when I was there early on, and I was trying to speak about these things in the early uh, days of my training, I had people say, there is no space for this in this department. This is a, this doesn't belong in the field of psychiatry. We don't know what you're talking about. However, it's not just myself. There's actually researchers and clinicians across the faith spectrum, you know, all different faith backgrounds who have been writing and pushing this domain. And I'll share with you something, um, you know, just to just to start to see that the change happening in the field of psychology. This last um, couple months ago, the annual uh, conference on the American Psychological Association or the APA, the largest body that kind of governs and um, uh, puts on the conferences, which of thousands and thousands of people in the field of psychology, um, hosted a conference in which they had on their main stage. This is the first time in their 130 year history on their main stage a topic on religion and mental health this the was first, the first time you said first time in 130 years. I, I, i've been to america I, i'll tell you people haven't been there i mean it's officially a secular state i understand correct me if i'm wrong but boy is your country religious absolutely <laughs> absolutely I mean, it really is i mean okay there are pockets of secularity maybe bits of new york a bit bit secular you go out there you know people are very proud of being christian or the muslim or whatever uh very religious uh whereas britain uh, ironically is technically a a christian country that our king is head of the church yet people don't like it's embarrassing to talk about religion in public you know but america's very different so uh, so i say that because i'm surprised at what you have just said in in the hundred or so years of existence of this prestigious premier psychological study there's a first time in the united states that religion has been on the agenda and i find that astonishing absolutely and, and it's it's um and in the main stage too i mean it's it's probably likely had talks in different years but this is the first time where it's like the organization itself is putting it onto the main stage realizing and recognizing there is um, a gap here that they have completely ignored. If we go back to the history of psychology just very briefly yeah. and say, if we break down the term psychology um, in the Latin understanding of the the the, 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 um, the root of the word psychology, the psyche means breath, spirit, mm. right? And of course, this is the study of the breath or spirit. Mm. And it's interesting in that this is how psychology actually began, even in Europe but eventually changed over time and moved into much more of an empirical, rational science Mm -hmm. in which nothing else other than that, which you can reproduce in a lab and test and see now under an fMRI machine, right? If you can't touch it and prove it, it doesn't exist. So the discussion on the soul just flew out right out the window. And many people criticize the field of psychology today um, and quite literally it makes sense in that it quote, lost its soul. (laughs) <laughs> yes, both both literally and metaphorically, it sounds. Yes. Yeah. Gosh. And this so is an just, effort to kind of bring it back, an effort to really come back to, you know, full circle to how the field began mm. and the importance of what happens when you leave out or, you know, the, another saying in the field is when people come into therapy in a very secularized um, understanding of the field and clinical practice of it, they have to, quote, check God at the door. Mm. Right. And that's very hard for a person who comes from a faith background, right? In which God is, they, they come from a God-centered worldview. And that's yes. how they understand their life and how they, even how they cope with everything coming through. It's quite hard. I, I completely sympathize and, and agree. But there is a problem, is there not? Because if psychology, I'm, putting, I'm kind of pushing back a little bit uh, for the sake of argument in a way. If psychology is supposed to be scientific, okay, if it is a science, whatever that means and you know science we have other scientists we have physics we have chemistry we have biology and so on these also in terms of their methodology as you put it check god at the door so a physicist wouldn't normally speak of the marvel i mean he could he or she could do but my experience they don't tend to publicly say well the universe um is a marvel of god's design uh, and we can analyze, we can investigate the mechanisms of that design, the laws of physics, and so on. They wouldn't use that language. They'd check it at the door. So couldn't a psychologist say, in trying to be scientific as well, that we would check that language at the door, whilst personally he or she may be a believer? Do you see what I mean? It's a question of how it's done rather than a, uh, a metaphysical declining of religion. It's just our way of doing science 
excludes that language. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? It does. But that exclusionary language has effects. All language has effect, right? And the effect eventually becomes um, completely excising it out of the field altogether, even looking down upon it, even um, not just looking down upon, but literally demeaning it. And mm-hmm. I think that's the the feel. I mean, certainly when I was going through training, you similar to what you mentioned, uh, being in, in Britain. I mean, you can't even bring up religion. You are literally considered the livestock, right, of the group, um, and not rigorous or scientific enough. Nor nor your research. But the reality is, back to research and scientific study. When you mm-hmm. look at some of these studies that have now, you know, back when I was training, we were in the hundreds. Now they're in the thousands of studies that show the the direct connection between one's spirituality or religion and their physical and mental well-being so we have proofs related to now research study after research study after research study in which there is everything that you would want in a scientific study right you have empirical evidence now empirical as it gets right prayer meditation it needn't be islamic of course it could be hindu whatever but this is not a a metaphysical uh it's not theology but nevertheless the practice of spirituality in some form is intrinsic to the well-being, the physical, mental, spiritual well-being yes, yes. of human beings. And this is empirically established now, as you say, over and over and over again. Over and over. You have wow. direct connections in, you know, cardiac, for example. You might think, well, that's very biological, scientific, right? Heart conditions. And the connection between that and between figuring out whether a person is depressed or not, the connection between the two, that one affects the other. Wow. Right. And as as you as you help the depression, you also help the cardiac condition, as well. I mean, these are well established at this point. It's so it's so it's so plentiful that it's hard to, any longer to push back on it. Right. I mean, the, the, I can't help but think of what the Quran says about the the, the, the fitna, the fitra, rather, the, the sense of the innate disposition that human beings have in our human nature to to worship God and to connect. So that this this would be a description of, of that scientifically of what the Quran is already teaching us about the nature of what it is to be human we have this you know we're god's creatures and so we would obviously flourish uh, as human beings if we behaved in the way that we're created to be to worship god for example correct absolutely and this that i would say was definitely an impetus for the early muslims who mm-hmm. of course in that islamic heritage did amazing work related to science, medicine, right? amazing advances, and focus quite a bit on psychology, focus quite a bit on the field today we call psychology, then they called al-munnafs, or the science of the self. Yeah. And when you look at their work, and you figure out what inspired them, verses in the Quran or in the Hadith directly correspond to that impetus, mm-hmm. that, that catalyst in which they said, you know, the Quran says, look within yourselves the signs of god are within yourself and look out into the world around you because those are the signs of god too and realize that if god is telling us to take care of ourselves and the baseline literally the baseline of all islamic duty starts with one being sane that you have mental capacity. And so if somebody in front of you does not have mental capacity, then there is this impetus to actually try to help them reach that point so that they can fulfill their personal obligatory duties and the duties to those around them. This becomes a core um, principle. This this principle is a core uh, impetus really for what inspired the early Muslims to do all the work they did. There's something that's very, very interesting in this subject, I, I must say. And, and of course, you, you are now a clinical professor of psychiatry at Stanford University. So clearly, the university now accepts the, the validity, uh, the raison d'etre, everything you're saying has been totally uh, on board and they want to support it and, and endow you with a chair. So that's fantastic news. But I'm still not 100% clear. Many people are perhaps not 100% clear. I mean, you're also on the Faculty of Islamic Psychology at the Cambridge Muslim College, which I mentioned, which is in the UK. What is Islamic psychology? I mean, you you described the benefits of a kind of uh, integrating a holistic understanding, spirituality, perhaps meditation, perhaps yoga, maybe for other people and so on. But what is distinctly Islamic psychology? Do you see what I mean? Uh, How is that conceptualized? 
Yes. And what happens when you put the word Islamic before any discipline? What, is that, what does that mean exactly? Yes. Absolutely. Um, and so if I could take just a step back and say that there are two connected related fields, but they, they overlap, but they're different than one another. And so it helps me explain what Islamic psychology is. And that's the other field that's connected, which is the Muslim mental health field. And when you put the word Muslim in front of something, in this case, mental health, we're talking about populations, Muslim populations. However it is that they practice or don't, the Islamic religion here is not quite as prevalent. It's really talking about different populations that are Muslim and their mental health. As soon as we go into Islamic psychology, mm. now we're talking about the religion itself. We're talking about its foundational principles, the thing that basically the scaffolding comes from the faith itself, and then you build a psychology upon it. So we often refer to this as a bottoms-up approach, where you have the scaffolding of the religion at the bottom, then you build upon it a psychology. That understanding is actually quite different than Muslim mental health, even when they overlap with one another. Okay, so what is Islamic uh, psychology then? So it's, it's based on the religion itself, but how, do, how does it connect with uh, your colleagues who are in psychology, what what do you what do you tell them? I, I, I'm a you know I practice Islamic psychology, and they say, well, I'm just a psychologist. I mean, if you know what I mean, how, how do you have that conversation with someone who you know claims the generic psychology, if you like, um, as if that's kind of the, the the more essential element, and you you have a variant of that? I'm not saying that's how that's how it is, but how would you explain that to your? It is sometimes. It is sometimes, um, but I would I would like to. You just clarify as well that there's no such thing as a generic psychology. The psychology we talk about today is a Western psychology. Ah. It's a Eurocentric psychology. Right. It's a psychology that um, when we talk about modern psychology, its roots are very Eurocentric. Right. And are they everything comes, this is where people sometimes don't realize this until we kind of take a step back. I do this with my Stanford students in their class. I, I teach a class to our psychiatry trainees called religion and culture in psychiatry and often at the very beginning of every one of these classes in every cohort i've taught now this is our 12th cohort of this class you know somebody raises their hand and says you know why are we doing this and yeah. is, isn't there just kind of your question the same as your question is it yeah. just psychology well what, what are we why are we talking about this and so i say to them or somebody might say to me i don't even think i have a i don't have a religion and i'm not even sure i have a culture and I say to them, yes, but if I were to pick you up right now and drop you in the Gambia, do you now have a culture? Oh. <laughs> right? Like you sometimes have to reframe and help people understand that yeah. everything has a bias to it. Everything is colored right. by an experience. So for us, when we talk about what is Islamic psychology, it is such. It, and I'm going to use the Ghazalian model of Imam Ghazali's model of understanding the human psyche. Imam Ghazali died in 11-11 of the Common Era, uh, um, a very, very famous Islamic uh, philosopher or theologian and uh, many, many things. But yeah, Yes, fantastic. yes. And one of the many people who contributed to the field of Islamic psychology. And his model of the human psyche is really what a lot of this is based on. It's the understanding that at the very core is the connection with a human being with their Lord. And that connection is a spiritual connection. And so he can, he connects it from the heart, the qalb, but it's the metaphysical heart, not the heart that beats in your chest. And, and, and Dr. Awa, can I stop, can I pause you there? Sorry, this word, the heart, because I know particularly myself, uh, before I was a Muslim, and I came across this language of the heart. Of course, I only knew about the physical pump in my ribcage, so to speak. <laughs> so when you start talking about the heart thinking, feeling, connecting, I think it doesn't make any sense. How can a heart, a biological mechanism, possibly do that? But Islamic, and this is the point, I think, of mentioning this, is Islamic conception of the heart is much richer and more profound than the pump that we in the materialist West have now reduced this language to. And this is your point about how yes. culturally specific the psychology has become. Um, so, so I, sorry to pause there, but could you just, what, did, what do you mean by the word heart? Yes, it's very similar to what you just said. I appreciate that very much. The difference between the physical and the metaphysical. So yeah. here, so often in the West, when we think about a thinking person or thinking in general, we think cognition, we go straight to the brain. Yeah. And the field of psychology today, modern psychology, that's exactly, I mean, look at where I'm housed. I'm housed in 
you know, any department of psychiatry and even psychology today is usually housed in the school of medicine, usually in the sciences. And so there you find a very kind of rational, <laughs> empirical kind of field and a lot less related to the emotional and or kind of the spiritual connection we were talking about earlier. So not in the humanities and not anywhere near the, 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 the anything related to divinity. So here, the metaphysical heart then is one that's able to, as you mentioned, ration, it's able to think, it's able to make decisions, mm -hmm. and it needs to be cleansed as well. There are diseases of the heart and there's a purification of the heart, which Imam Ghazali spends a lot of time in his books outlining and detailing what that is. And as Muslims, we are as concerned about the health of our heart, the physical, but also very much the metaphysical heart, in purifying that heart in order to then be able to do better and be well, have a sense of wellness, which is why the core Imam Ghazali's model, he puts the heart right at the center more important than the brain or cognition in this. Uh, so, so where is this heart? Look, I mean, maybe I'm using inappropriate language, so correct me if I'm wrong, but where is this heart located? Or is it not in a spatial dimension? It's not in a spatial dimension. Right. This is the thing, you see, because the cardio, the physical heart is located in a spatial dimension, obviously. So this is a spiritual, so it's not a metaphor, this is it. It's, it's, a re it's an ontological reality. It's not just a metaphor. So this is real or even perhaps more real, I don't know, than the physical heart, but it doesn't have a spatial temporal locality that we can point to and say, oh, there it is. Is that correct? Is that what? Correct. Absolutely. 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 And if you think about it as the core, then you have different things that connect to it. And so one we've already mentioned, the cognition, right? And so that the Arabic term is aql. Right, to be able to understand. And many people might kind of understand that as the brain or the, at this point in time, the mind is probably the better way to translate that. Also connected to it is the ruh, the ruh being the soul. And this is where I was saying the study of the soul has been largely lost. But part of the Islamic tradition, it's part and parcel. It's directly connected to the subject. Right. The, on the, another connection is the nafs or the self. And this is where, in terms of both of these, and sometimes people conflate the two of these, ruh and nafs, but they're actually different entities. Mm -hmm. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about them in the Qur'an and outlines them. He talks about different levels of nafs, for example, the tranquil nafs, the one that is um, pulling right to evil and then you have to kind of continue to fight against it right and kind of do your jihad or nafs or struggle against the nafs to do better um and so you have as i was mentioning the ruh connected the nafs connected the aql or the cognition connected to this qalb and also in some of the models you also see ihsas or emotions connected mm -hmm. as well yeah, you use a very, a very uh, strong word. You talk about the diseases of the heart. Now, when I think of heart disease, I'm immediately thinking of blocked arteries, you know, eating the wrong kind of food, not getting exercise or whatever. But you didn't mean that. You meant, I don't think, the diseases of the heart that you're speaking of are, what, spiritual diseases? Diseases, right. And why are they called diseases? And what is their cure? You're not taking tablets. We're not having physical exercise, are we? There's a whole different regime operating here. So could you expand a bit about you know, exactly what you mean by the word disease and the cure, inverted commas, that is offered in the, in the Islamic spiritual slash psychological approach to this? Absolutely. Absolutely. The best way to explain this, if I may, yeah. um, is to also take a step back here too and explain um, there's a hadith or saying of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, وسلم, that in which he's asked to explain about this religion. And he explains it in three levels and explains right. that the first level of it is Islam. So kind of the five pillars that many people are familiar with of Islam. And the next layer up is Iman, the, the belief system, the Aqidah or the creed that Muslims believe. And the third layer up, which is what I'm gonna focus on here is Ihsan. And Ihsan being kind of that level of excellence, right? Mm -hmm. And that connectedness. So when a person, it, you could be a Muslim at any of these levels, but the ideal is to kind of get to the very top, right? To kind of work your way through the three levels. And so if you've done your five pillars, you're praying, you're fasting, you're giving your charity, and you have your Iman, your core belief system, what's left then to do is really work on purifying and bettering oneself that level of excellence or ihsan. So, so much of the science of the diseases of the heart is really focusing on not so much the clinical diseases that you were mentioning, kind of like heart disease, you know, a blocked artery, or even a psychiatric disease, depression, anxiety, but actually looking more here at things like 
greed, gluttony, vanity, love of the limelight, you know, all of these different types of spiritual diseases, which in Islam and a lot of the Muslim spiritual scholars of the inner sciences say that those diseases are just as deadly as the physical ones and need their treatments and cures just as physical illnesses. And Mm -hmm. if we ignore it, then you're out of balance. You may be very healthy because you run a mile every day and eat very, very healthy food and sleep well, right? And maybe you also um, uh, kind of do well in terms of morality. You're a good moral person and treat others well. But if you don't have the spiritual connectedness where you're able to also make sure you're somebody who doesn't lie and cheat and steal and, and cause others harm, then you're out of balance. It's not holistic, in your, you are not a holistic person in your wellness. So there's some, there's a huge gap here missing. You're not so, in the DSM. No, carry on, sorry. You won't see this, you won't see these illnesses, these diseases in the DSM, our Diagnostic Manual of Psychiatry. Right. But I'm very hopeful that it's the Muslims that will come together with actually putting a more complete manual of what are all the different illnesses that need to be treated, both physical and spiritual. Yes, I'm fascinated because I come from a a Christian background. A lot of what you said uh, would resonate from that context. So the language of the heart, the Bible talks about the heart. The psalmist, for example, in the book of Psalms, talks about the human heart. And the prophets sometimes talk about how how corrupt the human heart is. And they're not talking about the physical organ in in our ribcage. They're using the same, I think, the same concept. And I think also, so that's found in the Jewish Bible and therefore in the Christian tradition, it's in the Islamic tradition. And I think it's in other traditions as well, in, in the Far Eastern tradition as well so this seems to be a, a quite a common almost universal uh, language in traditional religions that is used that su- science in inverted commas in this western construct as you as you would describe it ha- has kind of bleached out in the name of science i suppose this kind of a uh, uh, very rationalist uh, empiricist materialist kind of way of looking at things so th- this this y- your approach is both very new and very old isn't it it's not yeah. it's not a it's it's a technology that's been around for millennia probably around the world for millennia but it seems new and some kind of fresh and so on because it's been lost perhaps in the western context anyway and and i would say a, a term that you had brought up earlier which is the concept of fitra fitra yes. is that innate Um, you know, kind of connection where we know you can't necessarily always put your finger on it, but you know, inside of yourself, and and that's that deep connection with God. And so this is a human aspect. It's not limited to Muslims. It's really all humans can recognize fitra when they see it, when they hear about it. And so when, when someone hears about this and understands even the concept of holistic well-being, balancing mind, body, and soul, regardless of their a background usually they're able to say yes that's 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 what i want i want that i want that balance yeah. right there yeah mizan as it's called in the arabic tr- tradition um but a, a slightly controversial question here if you don't want to answer it, that's fine I, I i'm i'm very interested in atheists and atheism okay I, I mean, both the theoretical and the individual. I, I know atheists. Uh, some of them are even sort of vaguely friends. Not many of them, but um, and. I have a suspicion, and I was wondering if you have any clinical view or professional view on this. And again, if you don't have a view, that's fine. But my, my, my intuition is that a lot of atheists are atheists because they're very angry with God. So they might have had some bad experience, uh, some relationship or with work or whatever, some existential um, gre- you know, crisis, an acute event in their lives. And for me, the opposite of of uh love is not hate but indifference when you say i'm not going to hate you i'm going to say in my anger you don't even exist mm-hmm. you know it's wiping them out completely it's the ultimate kind of dissing of someone if you like um my suspicion is based on precisely little evidence really uh, it, just anecdotal evidence is that a lot of atheists self-called are actually angry at god at some level, because you mentioned the fitra, you talked about the fitra. This is our natural disposition for our species. So atheism doesn't really fit, does it, in that? So I'm looking for some kind of explanation on the heart level, your heart, so to speak, the, the heart you, you've been speaking about, that makes sense of atheists. Because often they'll say to me, well, I'm an atheist because I haven't seen any evidence for God. And I'm thinking, well, what evidence do you want? It's all around you, you know, it's the universe. Uh, um, but they, they don't seem very happy with that. And I'm thinking, well, 
there's something there's something going on there that seems more than the presenting rationale of their atheism do you see what i mean do you have a view on that you might want i to do say? i do and and i think and i think there's definitely something to be said about anger we certainly see that quite a bit in in therapy and in in our in sessions that we work on with individuals uh, sometimes i also wonder how much of it is veiled or called by another name wow. for example in many of the patients that i've worked with um and I, I will say this i'll give this caveat and say as somebody from a faith background working with somebody who's not from a faith background in therapy it could be quite um stifling sometimes because sometimes they're seeing the world in such a bleak way and maybe what they're describing is a very traumatic terrible thing that's happened and with a believer, they understand that there is a judgment day and there is a better day coming after this, mm -hmm. right? The hereafter in which there is goodness to come after this dif difficult life. This is a world of tribulations, dotted bala, as we call it here on earth. Mm -hmm. And so when you don't have that point of view, yes, you can get a lot of anger, resentment. Also, I would say maybe also veiled by another name. So often what we find people say is they'll say, Oh, I'm going to channel, you know, all this energy out into the universe and the universe will respond, you know, I'll manifest, I'll say what I want and it manifests. And, you know, it's honestly a rose by any other name is still a rose, right? Like what, what are they doing other than dua? Like that is essentially what they're manifesting into the world. Yet right. they are not able to use the language of religion because they have walked away from that. And so sometimes it's anger, but sometimes it's also, um, availing of the terminology or using different terminology to say the same things that honestly a person of faith that's very interesting you're looking beneath the surface of the of the of the term is used actually underneath are actually they are act, they're acting a little bit like believers even though they'll deny it at the surface level certainly certainly yes oh, that's, that's very interesting insight hmm, okay and then there's the third thing i would say is is a word uh, a term that you mentioned as well which is dissonance a mm. cognitive dissonance mm. where a person is essentially of two minds where if you were to kind of and we do this we're able to do this in therapy sometimes is actually go deeper 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 into the discussion and um really go back into people's core beliefs their core belief systems and we do this a lot in cbt or cognitive behavioral therapy where you really talk about negative core beliefs that people walk around with things like um you know the world is unsafe mm -hmm. nobody's kind right things like this where people walk around so they have a lot of critical thoughts to the world around them and people yes and in doing that we often tell people you're essentially of two minds because you go out every day Yes, sure, you lock your car in your front door, but you also interact with people at the grocery store or do things every day, and those people are safe, so it's not always unsafe. So there's a two minds that are happening sometimes, and sometimes you have to be able to connect, help people connect the dots, and then do behavioral change. Mm. And it's also for some people also that, that they might be more favorably disposed towards belief or faith during i don't know during the summer when they're feeling happy and more optimistic and when they've eaten a good meal or you know they're going things are going well with their family rather than you know in the bleak midwinter when things are not going so good and they they're financially challenged and so yeah, there might also be that kind of you know life just makes us more amenable to one than the other you know rather than a a committed position that one holds if you sort of mean so it could be it could be quite fluid i, I suppose I, I, and I think so. I've, I, I, on, in fact, I would say the majority of people that I meet sort of are agnostic. They yeah. sort of say, I just don't know. They're not w willing to take that hard stance of there is no God, right? And I'm going to discount it. Um, and they're somewhere sort of in the middle because, again, when you scratch the surface and go deep enough, they realize that they're not getting up out of bed every morning and able to take that first breath without some assistance that's not of their own, right? Yeah. Oh, that's a lovely way of putting it. I like that. It's very nice. Okay. Um, finally, then, if, if I may, uh, if, for interested viewers, they may, they may even include myself. It does include myself. What, would you, what resources would you recommend then for people to access? Could be YouTube, could be books uh, or, or whatever. If people want to explore Islamic psychology better or, or in, in greater depth to, to help them personally, but also academically to understand the discipline. Sure. Yes. There's a couple of resources. One is if they're willing to read something a little more uh, dense, <laughs> if you will, um, 
for those who want you know more in-depth in understanding we've actually written a book on this topic and it's actually called islamic psychology and it's introducing islamic principles into clinical mental health care and right. so they're able this is um published by rootledge and right. they're able to take a look um and read in more in depth particularly those first introductory chapters that really outline and explain what is islamic psychology and what are the models that we're using to, to define it um, and certainly for clinicians that might be interested in, in working on this um and integrating this in their own clinical practice. Mm -hmm. For those who are able to, willing to read academic papers, but not a whole book, I would direct them towards my lab's website, the Stanford University's Muslim Mental Health and Islamic Psychology Lab. On our publications page, we have all of our publications. Actually, you can click them and immediately read all of the articles that we have published. Both uh, on the these website. are available. They're not behind a paywall or anything They're like that. Behind a paywall. They're right on the website. Right. Yes. Exactly. And for the more, a more popular um, or ex uh, a more generally accessible uh, resource, would you get Yes, and for those who are not deep readers, <laughs> I would say another resource to really learn about the connection between Islam and psychology. Mm -hmm. There's a series that I've recorded uh, with the Yaqeen Institute that oh. talks about, um, you know, really defining what is prophetic understanding of holistic wellness and care mm -hmm. and, and, and explaining what is mental health from an Islamic point of view. There's mm -hmm. historical aspects to that conversation. It's, I believe, a several part series. And um, and then we go into kind of discussions on how do you directly benefit from that kind of practical advice related to this right. as well. Oh, that's extremely helpful. So you're keen. Okay, I'll, I'll try and link to these uh, in the description below so people can directly access them. Well, I think that's, that's fantastic. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Dr. Rania Awad, for your uh, precious time and absolutely fascinating, actually. And um, it's a very encouraging message, actually, you're presenting here uh, for, for Muslims and others as well uh, in exploring a better way to live, I think. Uh, um, anyway, but so thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Absolutely my pleasure. Until next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.